You know, it's interesting though. I, I recognize like all the stuff that a lot of people are going through right now. I went through like two, three years ago mm-hmm. for two, three years and just coming out of the other side of it now and going like, oh wow, now it all makes sense. And it was like the moment where I got the relief of where like things clicked for me was the moment that then the mass started experiencing it. It's kind of funny how I think that happens in life. Like we get led right to the point of the breakthrough, which is us following the path for long enough. And sometimes success is just not quitting. It's just like holding on long enough to just make it through something. It's not like about being massively successful and having the mountaintop moment. Sometimes it's just surviving the thing that you're in. And I've noticed that for me. And now I'm feeling like so energized because I'm like, wow, I have the integrity to lead these people through something because I went through it. And that allows me so much opportunity to be able to speak into their life and to encourage them and to be there for them. And yeah, and, and also not carry the pain of it. The scar, and the scar is cool, but the wound, that's... Scars are cool. Gushing wounds are disgusting though. Yeah. So, right? <laughs> Whereas if you had a book with no chapters, yeah, that would be kind of monotonous and boring. You just would read right through. So, well, we're happy to have our guest here today. Um, this gentleman was actually um, a good friend of ours. Uh, brought it up. I said, "Hey, I'd really like somebody on the hope wagon to it that went through extreme adversity." Mm-hmm. Um, I specifically said somebody that maybe had served time um, because I want to know when people serve time, like where what role does hope play in that? What does it look like? I know it's tangible and thick. So, we're very very honored. We have Mr. Jonathan Field, right, with us today. And uh, we're very, very thankful that you decided to come all the way out here to Nolensville, yeah. Tennessee, out on the Hope Wagon. In the boonies. We're definitely in the boonies. I'm from about two hours from here, so it was kind of like memory lane driving through the boonies in Tennessee. Where do you live now? Uh, Greenville, South Carolina. Okay. Cool, nice. And you're up here for brand builders? Yep. Yeah, we have an event. They had an accelerator event where my wife and I are uh, part of the company's uh, program. So nice. And you, are you into Roy? Yeah, shut up. Yeah, Roy. Love you. Yeah. You guys are great. Got so, a crazy story how I came across Rory. Maybe we'll talk about that. Okay. Yeah, it has to do with prison, actually. So raised in Greenville? No, no. Raised two hours south of Well. I was telling my wife, maybe it's actually only, only about an hour because it's two hours south of Nashville. Yeah. Fayetteville, Tennessee. Oh. Yeah. I went to Fayetteville one time. Yeah. There's not much down there. Yeah. We went down there because I wanted to go hog hunting. <laughs> and there was like, man, we should, isn't that Grundy County? Lincoln. Lincoln County. We went down there and like, we wanted to go hog hunting. And they were like, oh, you got to go to this place. It's a, uh, you know, it's got, you know, 1300 acres. And we showed up and like these two guys came out literally wearing overalls with no shirts on anything. And they had cur dogs. And they're like, yeah, you know, we'll let the dogs go. And I was like, wow. So so you grew up there. How long, uh, what, at what age did you leave Fayetteville? Uh, 16, 16 years old. Whoa, okay. Um, the thing is, is my family, I'm the only one of my siblings from Tennessee. Uh, and my family has moved away from there since then so i've got nothing to tie me there except for some people on facebook that i grew up with from kindergarten on um i actually am probably going to go next week but yeah my mother and father are they grew up in california that's where my my siblings are from huntington beach oh wow and uh they were living in maine and my mom conceived with me and right before she had me they moved down to tennessee that's where my grandmother had a horse farm out there wow 
And uh, so, yeah, they moved out there and I, I grew up there and then I left it at 16 years old. Do you remember Maine at all? No, because I was born in Maine. Yeah, so she, they had me in Tennessee. They, mm-hmm. Right before they had me, okay. they moved down to, to Fayetteville. Yeah. So lived there till you were 16. What took you out of there? Uh, dropped out of high school to follow the Grateful Dead with my, my older brother. No way. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Like going to her. Well, actually, what happened is uh, I went to juvenile detention uh, when I was 15 okay. for pulling a knife out on the bully of mine that I had. and uh, But I wasn't a killer, so when he told me to just go ahead and he said, do it, you know, I'm like, yeah. I'm not a killer, so I folded the knife up, put it away, and, and then they went and told on me, and so I got sent away to, uh, to a juvenile detention for nine months, turned 16 there. Um, my brother, in the meantime, had moved to a little hippie town in Eureka Springs, Arkansas, and uh, like they worshipped him almost in this in this little town. Like my brother was a really charismatic guy, and so when I got out, I went and spent the summer with him in in uh, in Arkansas. Started eating LSD and and stuff like that. He went on to follow the Grateful Dead, and uh, I was on probation still. So I went back to Fayetteville until I was done with the 11th grade. I didn't have to pass it. I just had to get past the 11th grade. I really never should have got past the ninth grade um, because I was super ADHD, hated school, wasn't into it. I'd skip and go smoke weed and stuff. And um, as soon as they released me from probation, I went with my brother and he took me to follow the Grateful Dead with him. Their last uh, summer tour, 1995. They taught me all the ropes, how to sell, how to sell drugs. Yeah. There were some rules to it. So yeah. you don't just sell to anybody because the feds were there and they dressed up in their tie dyes. And he said, never, the rules were never sell to a, never sell to anybody that looks like they're over 18, which I was 17 at the time. So that was, <laughs> that's not as bad as it sounds. And don't sell to anybody with a mustache and don't sell to anybody in a tie dye, especially don't sell to a guy with a mustache and a tie dye. They're going to. They're gonna be an undercover fed for sure, and so that was my those were my lessons and and uh, that's very entrepreneurial. <laughs> so yeah, being a dope dealer, you you know you're running a business. Yeah, yeah. So we were part of the Grateful Dead family, so we got family prices. So we would turn a sheet of acid, we would pay a hundred, and then we would sell it here on the East Coast. You'd sell it for five dollars a hit, so we'd turn a hundred into five hundred like really quick, and we'd sell them in five strips and. Whoa. Ten strips and and uh, that was my uh, that was my seventeen year year old life. I want to go back to when you were fifteen when you went to juvie, mm-hmm. right? Um, so, like leading up to that, what was home life like? What what? I mean, we're give us some you know tell us what life was like growing up into that point, and then I want to know when you got to that point, like what was that like? And was that a, was that trauma for you going to juvie and stuff? Or by that time, were you kind of used to trouble or? So what was home life like? Yeah, home life uh, raised to a narcissistic mother. Um, She uh, really kind of, she was there, but somewhat neglectful. Yeah. I was never told I was awesome or, you know, cool or, you know, powerful or I could do anything I wanted to. And um, she told me she used to change our diapers with rubber gloves on because she was so grossed out by her poop. So my uh, older sister, Jessica, I have a half-sister. She's seven years older than me. She pretty much 
changed my diapers, took care of me. So uh, my dad wasn't around. He worked in, uh, worked in construction. He only came home every other weekend. And my mom, I don't, I'm not sure how many narcissists you've been around in your life, but everybody is, nobody's, everybody's the worst and they're the greatest. So um, I had no desire because of how my mom talked to, talked about my father to, to really have a relationship with him. So I latched on to Jacob, my older brother. He was three years older than me. And everything he did, I wanted to do. And and uh, really, there was kind of a, at a young age, you know, he was just a kid. Kids don't make the best father figures for kids. Um, he, he doesn't know any better. I'm the annoying little brother. When his friends would call me little Jacob, I thought that was amazing because I wanted to be just like Jacob. Right. But I was this, I was like cramping his style, you know. So at that young age, I was rejected by him. Sometimes my mom would force him to take uh, take me with him, and that's when he would be the meanest. That's when I would he'd just pour it on me and tell me how stupid I was and dumb. He just wanted to make me not want to come with him the next time. It never worked, so I just endured the abuse. And but here's the thing: when you're not, when you don't have a foundation, when a child is not told their value and how awesome they are and how important they are and and things like that you're raised in a fallen world so even if mom and dad do a perfect job eventually being raised in a fallen world growing up in it you're going to come against rejection and abuse and me i didn't have the truth to fall back on i just eventually you know at a young age started rejecting myself and and so I hated myself and I was never good enough. I just concluded I'm, I'm never going to be good enough. And so that was kind of my subconscious beliefs that it took a long time for me to, for me to break free from. I started doing meth when I was 16 and um, I tried to quit at 18. My brother overdosed and passed away from a heroin overdose. Uh, Jacob died from a heroin overdose. So you lost your brother at 18 yeah. and he was 18. He was about to be 21 and I was about, I was almost 18. He was almost 21. And, um, I became a Christian at that point and, uh, I decided I was going to stop doing drugs and I had some encounters with God that were awesome. Um, but uh, ultimately, man, I was, I had always had him and now I'm all alone. And, um, I ended up inheriting some money and I fell into some drugs and, prostitutes and things like that started living a double life when I lived in Florida I was involved in church and things like that I had a girlfriend we were going to get married but I started like just living a secret life man going out and I always I loved meth but where I lived in Florida there was no meth all they had was crack so I started smoking crack even though I didn't like it I would just keep going back and like every day I I would go on little binges and fortunately, it was kind of a blessing. I had this money. I inherited like $180,000. I blew it in a year Whoa. when I was 19 years old. And every time I, I would just be like, man, this sucks. Like, I don't even know why I would keep doing it. The crack, the cocaine has that kind of like physically addictive quality to it. So even though I didn't like it, I'd just keep smoking it. But fortunately for me, I had a whole bunch of money at that time and every time I was just I would just get fed up with it I'm like what the hell am I doing like this is, this is stupid Sarah I hate crack why I'm I've been smoking it for three days with these 
prostitutes and and uh, these guys that are trying to take advantage of me and rob me and stuff like that. And, and so I'd quit, but then I'd just find my way back to it. I would I would encounter something stressful or something would trigger me. And the way that I would handle it is I'd go back down to the hood and I would either, if I was in a new neighborhood, I, I, I knew being white where I was at, if I just went down to the hood and like you'd get swarmed just because you're white, you know, they'd swarm you and, and they'd be trying to rip me off. So I would go find a, pro, a streetwalker, a prostitute, sleep with her um, for whatever my other my other issues that I had. But then that would also like at least I'm she'd go deal with the the people and get the crack for us. But I also was I was introduced to pornography at three years old. Wow. So so the first uh, obsession I had was sex like from the time I was three years old I was obsessed with sex um my grandfather had put the satellite in our backyard and when my mom and dad wouldn't be there I had an older brother uh Dana half brother and a half sister they had a different dad but Dana was nine years older than me um they would turn on I remember it still like it was I was three years old three and a half American triple ecstasy on the TV and there was like hardcore pornography and I was so the sex drive turned on at three four my parents had a friend or my parents had some friends that had a little girl I was four she was three we were trying to have sex and we kept getting caught by our mom we, there was like this blanket we got caught one time and then we got in this little blanket closet in our bathroom and, and we were trying to like do it there. But her mom came in and she's just like, what are you guys doing? Get out of here. And so we eventually made it to another, uh, my bathroom and, and me and my brother's room that we shared. And we just went at it and, you know, we got naked and we went at it. I just didn't understand the physics. I didn't know how it worked. I thought you just rubbed everything yeah, together. Yeah, yeah. But if I would have known, like it was supposed to go in, you know, sorry to be graphic, but yeah, I was... Like that was the only thing that stopped us from actually having sex. But yeah, so from four years old, before that, all my life, I was just obsessed. I, I remember being in first grade or second grade and sitting under the desk, just staring at the, the teacher's dress or whatever, just trying to like that, man. Dude. So yeah, the sex thing, man, that was like the worst. I relate to you. I relate to you. Like I found uh, when my father, uh, when, my, uh, when I went into my uncle's place, you know, they would have dirty magazines. Or when I went over to the town garage, they have the dirty calendars, you know. And then one time I was exposed down at this friend's house that had the dirty channels. That was the first time I ever saw it. And that curiosity develops into an, an obsessive thing. Like, well, I want to learn more about that. What's that all about, you know? And then it does, it does because you're that's the first you've ever seen or ever known of it, you know? So you were you were exposed to that. That was probably the first real addiction you had in your life, right? And, you know, here you are, like, you got teachers, and, you know, you're just, you're probably constantly looking for that. Like, what did that develop into, and then how? where was the next journey in your life? Yeah, so the prostitute thing was crazy. When I had inherited that money, um, you know, I, I didn't think I was attractive. I didn't think that I could get girls. Or, you know, I had girlfriends and stuff like that, but it, it was just like, I didn't know how to pick up girls. I didn't have the confidence for that. So I would just say, this will be easy. Just call up these escorts and they just come to the hotel room. And that was, man, and, and this was after I became a Christian. After I gave my life to the Lord, like here I am doing this stuff. And so the shame 
not understanding that God loves me, just feeling so ashamed of myself, saying I'm never going to do that again. And then sometimes it'd be a couple hours later, I'm back on the phone in the same hotel room calling another girl up. And uh, I just went through so many women doing that, but it was just like a shame cycle, you know? I literally remember looking in the mirror, just like hating myself, punching myself in the face in the mirror, just so disgusted because there's no way God could love me. I didn't think, you know, I had never really been taught God loves me. Like my mom, when I was a kid said, you better get your life right or you're going to miss the rapture. So everything was like a fear-based thing. It was shame. Um, and, um, yeah, that went on for years. Um, when I was about 23, 22, I had met a girl when I moved to Phoenix and we ended up getting married and we ended up having my first son and he wasn't an accident or anything. We went and visited a friend of ours and he, they had just had a baby and my ex-wife at the time, she, or my wife at the time, she, she got baby fever. So she's like, we want a bit, I want a baby. So I'm like, are you sure you want to do this? Yeah. So man, we, we started going, we, decided to have a baby and within like a month and a half she's pregnant and um, so he was born and I named him after my brother to carry on my brother's name Jacob Leefield and you know when he was born like something came alive in me you know I I never knew that I could love like this I had never loved anything like this right anybody like I loved my brother growing up um, and I was real protective of him. Like, it was funny being the little brother. I'd be ready to fight for him. Um, but when my boy was born, then, you know, this something woke up in me. And, and I started kind of understanding God, like, as a father. I'm like, I, I started getting glimpses of it at that point. Like, wow, God, you, you feel this way about me. And, and but I still had these drug issues. I would relapse. And, and eventually she left. She told me it was because, you know, every once in a while I would relapse and, and not to diminish it, but you know, you hear of people like that have a significant other that's on drugs and they go on a binge and they don't see him for three or four weeks. I'd go and I'd have a stressful day in Phoenix. You could drive down to the Mexican hood and you can go buy like a little 20 sack of meth. And, um, I would come home and, and I would like fake sleeping next to her. I wouldn't like disappear or anything like that. But when she left. Uh, the night before I had eaten some mess, she went out with some friends and she came home and I was just kind of out of my mind. I ate a whole bunch of it, like, um, and she left, said it was all my fault. And I believed it was my fault. Like I, I learned some things afterwards that, uh, what was really going on with her. But at the, at the time I just wanted to be the father to my son that I never had. Yeah. I wanted to give my boy that family life and. And when she left and she said it was my fault, I believed it and it was all my fault and I was the biggest loser. That was the hardest thing I've ever gone through. I just got out of prison a year ago and that was nothing compared to like having him taken out of my life. Um, that, that took me through a dark path to where I had never hated anybody. Like all my life, I never let myself hate. I was told like, if you hate somebody, that's a God you're going to go to hell if you hate somebody. So I never let myself hate anybody. And, but with my ex-wife, I let myself hate her and I just went down a dark, dark path. And my life just consisted for years of, of me just doing the math to make the pain of being such a loser to just escape from that. And 
then also, you know, getting with women, like, I guess that did something for my ego and the meth and the women just went hand in hand. And I literally just would have sex all day long just to try to like, forget about that stuff, but it just never got better. Right. And, um, and, uh, it would be, it wouldn't be till 2011 that I finally, the end of 2010 that I finally figured out how to beat that uh, addiction. And I went and spent time with this pastor. There's a pastor named Dan Moeller out there that I, I really was into. And I would listen to, to his preaching while I was on meth. And I had a revelation of God's love that he loved me. And I just made a commitment. I'm like, Lord, I don't feel your love, but I know you love me. And I'm just going to believe your word. And even though I can't stop doing this, these drugs and I can't stop sleeping with these women, I'm just going to still, I would still worship and I'd still listen to these messages and I'd try to get some help. And Dan Moeller started this school called the School of Kingdom Living. And they told me I could come up there and go to it for free. It was all, he made it so cheap to where anybody could go, but I didn't even have the two or 300 bucks. And there was this lady, Alana, that was helping. And she called up, she said, if you can just get up here, then, you know, there's a spot, a place for you. And man, the first week of getting the identity what the Bible says about who I am mm. and learning about God's love and learning the tactics that the devil uses that will uh, seeing what every like little tactic tactics he does that would always work on me. Once those were exposed, they didn't work anymore. And man, I've been off, I've been off meth ever since that's been 13 years now. Whoa. Congratulations, Thanks. man. Praise God. So you said that you did, you went to prison, you served, served time. How long, how long were you gone? Well, I went to prison before I got free. Right. I was a criminal, you know. I, well, I was a meth addict. Yeah. And though I was pretty good with feeling people out and not getting busted with the drugs, and um, I would sell I would sell meth uh, to pretty much support my habit. I was never a big-time dealer, but I, I would just go make my rounds, hustle, so I had free meth to do. Enough for your own. And, um, and uh I went to prison for identity theft. I like some guy taught me how to steal people's identities. He had mortgage things that he figured out these dumpsters with mortgage applications in them that has everything. A mortgage application has everything and they're supposed to be shredded, but he found this like yeah. jackpot dumpster and he taught me how to like open up accounts and um, use their information, answer the secret questions online. So I would open up, get instant credit online and then we would order it and have it shipped and then go pick it up. My, um, my career in that lasted a month before I got busted by a guy whose identity I stole. Like even the cops didn't get me. He figured out where I was getting it shipped to and uh, the stuff shipped to. And I went to this hotel to pick up these items that I would order off eBay and then I'd go sell them for half price. And this guy was like, are you, he's like, he said, are you Michael Devliger? And he grabbed one arm. And his friend was there with me and he grabbed the other arm and I did everything I could to fight him. And those guys both like took me down and, and I went to jail for that. So I, I ended up doing a year for that. But here's the crazy thing. I got free from drugs in 2011, right before 2011, the end of 2010. You know, I immediately married my wife, Shana. We had our first daughter, Ziva. All I ever wanted was a family and just to be a dad again. And then we had Isaiah and then we had Serafina. And 
I had started this business. We bought a house. Like for the first time in my life, I'm able to like actually like pay bills and be responsible. And we started this, I, I started this business, uh, buying electronics from people on Craigslist and then just flipping them on eBay or flipping them back on Craigslist. I would like, you know, just give them quick cash and then I'd flip it. I'd just hold on. I was willing to just hold on to it and get as much as I could for a used item. And it did so good. I started making money and plus I was a felon, so I couldn't get a job. Whoa. Nothing but dead end jobs. So it started doing good. I opened a store and the store grew. It was kind of like a pawn shop, still have it today. Where we buy things from people, primarily primarily electronics, but anything we could flip on eBay. And the pawn shops in our town didn't do eBay. So we I was like, this is awesome. I can buy whatever comes in and I'll flip it on eBay. And over the years, it just became more, more and more well-known uh, among the drug addicts. And we had like a no questions asked. We just buy whatever. Uh-huh. And um, it's pretty much became like we would buy brand new items. It started out, people would buy a little Bluetooth speakers and we'd buy it. And, and by the time people started bringing in a lot of brand new items, plus there were some other factors that made it less shady. There was like a... a, a a thing in town that was an auction yeah, where you could buy shelf poles and like things that didn't do well in uh, like with tools and electronics that didn't do well in the store. So they pull them off the shelf, auction them off and you get all this brand new electronics. I'd buy those. People were bringing in brand new stuff into the store. And so um, I eventually found out that they're getting them from this auction called um, uh, Bid on Fusion. It was a local auction that was in my town that I didn't know about. So once these people, I found out where they were getting it from, I started going to the auction and buying everything that I could sell on eBay. And I was paying more for it and I just liquidated it. But it kind of like created more of a culture that just because it's brand new in the box doesn't mean it's like stolen off the shelf. Right. Um, And, uh, but it eventually just got to where honestly, like it was like, I didn't, I wanted to believe the best in people, but it, me having discernment, living on the streets, being homeless, being a drug dealer, dealing with drug addicts, it started getting a little crazy. You knew it. And um, and I knew it was going on, but I couldn't prove it. And I'd been wrong when I had accused people in the past. So it, that's, so I just, we bought everything. After, you know, I, I bought the house, got the family, forsook crime and um, drugs. Nine years after almost, the, the feds target me. Um, was some guys get busted in my store from trying to sell us some stuff that they had stolen from Lowe's or Home Depot. And um, the sheriff at the time, he came, or one of the sheriff's deputies came and he started accusing me. And, but the way he was doing it, he was trying to trip me up in my words and I was real sharp to see what he was doing. And, it, and so I just kind of got into a little argument with the guy and it went to his head. He wanted to make a name for himself, so he pushed for it to go federal. FBI wouldn't pick it up. They said it wasn't big enough, it wasn't enough money. Um, but the Secret Service, the prosecutor said, okay, we'll hit him with this angle because he's buying or because he's shipping things through the mail and he's selling it on eBay. We'll say it was conspiracy to commit wire and mail fraud. So they charged me with that. Right. And But I didn't ever defraud anybody. Anything somebody ordered from me, I always delivered on anything they ordered from me. So I fought it. It's like at the most you guys could get me with uh, receiving stolen goods. So I fought it. When the feds came after me, I was in the middle of every year our church does a fast, a 21-day fast. And I was 12 days into this fast, water only. Wow. And the whole purpose of this fast that I was doing, I was 
just trying to be extreme. The whole purpose was to eliminate fear from my life and to only make a decision based on faith. And so when the feds came through, my faith was like so high and I was just not going to be moved by fear. And they put me on the news and I was like, man, God is going to take me through this. This is going to be crazy. This is a misunderstanding. Like I didn't conspire with these drug addicts to commit wire and mail fraud. So I, I decided to fight it. And uh, I just was convinced that I was going to beat the federal government. And um, they offered me an eight-year plea. But everything was a threat, man. I'd become so aware of how the devil works. Like everything is always a threat. He's trying to get, he's trying to say, you, you can't do what God tells you to do or this is going to happen. You know, God may be moving. Like for me in the first place, I was starting to get, my conscience was bothering me with how my business had became like all these drug addicts were coming in and, and I was like, I got to stop buying the brand new in the box stuff. But, and it bothered me for like two days. And I see now it was God trying to lead me away from this thing. He, and, and, but I didn't have the courage, the guts to do it because I had employees that had families. And if I stopped buying the brand new in the box stuff, I'd still make money, but maybe I wouldn't be able to afford to pay them. And then I'd have to fire them. So I just didn't have the guts to obey God. Mm. And when the feds came through, everything that the prosecutor did was to threaten me. It's like, I'm, we're going to take your kids from you. He was bragging to his lawyer friends about doing that. And I said, man, you can't, you're not going to do any of that stuff to me. But it was, if he would have just leveled with me and said, hey, Jonathan, I want to give you the benefit of the doubt. Just come down and talk to me. Like I'm not, right? maybe, you know, this just looks really bad. This is conspiracy to commit wire and mail fraud. This is up to 20 years you could face. But he was, and everything was a threat. So he offered me eight years plea and, um, and he said, well, I know Jonathan's afraid his life's falling apart. And I told the lawyer, my lawyer, I said, man, my life's not falling apart. My life is in God's hands. Great. And uh, so I decided to fight it anyway. And uh, because of that, they punished me by charging my wife. So my wife and I both got charged with that. She never had anything to do with the business. Her name was on the business because I had tax issues. But long story short, we took it to trial, lost. Mm. They sentenced me to five years in prison and they, the judge was merciful because he did what they call a downward variance. My sentencing guidelines were nine to 14 years as a first time offender. And I know I just told you that I had a crime before, but a year before the feds came, I said, man, I want to vote. I want to try to get my, my criminal history expunged. I see that was God knowing that I wasn't going to obey him. Mm. What was he, he did everything he could to soften the blow. People go through suffering and they think that God's putting them through it. Or God's trying to teach me a lesson. Man, the suffering, everything, because of what I understand about God through his word, I see everything God did to lessen the blow. So I would have, if I would have stood before the judge with the criminal history, as a first-time offender, it was nine to fourteen years. That was the sentence. That was like the guidelines he's supposed to go to. I probably would have got a minimum of fifteen years in prison. As a family man, as a guy that's not trying to be do criminal stuff anymore, and and he was merciful and he said, "I'm going to give you five years." And it wasn't until I was in prison that I realized all these things. Like I didn't know that his guidelines were nine to fourteen years. 
Like an, on the on the low end, I should still be in there for another five years. Um, but I just see how God. I before I went, he gave me the judge gave me a month to get my orders or my affairs in order, and um, I sold some of my toys and stuff and cars, gave a car away to somebody that needed it, and I just wanted to do everything I could to prepare my kids. Um, because if there's anything you, anybody that knows me knows is I love kids. I love my children. Um, so couple stories, if it's okay, if we have time. Yeah. What, I want to know what that conversation with your kids sounds. Yeah. So, you know, I saw how Jesus was with his disciples before he got crucified. He knew what was going to happen. And if you look in Mark, Jesus has a conversation with the disciples like three times. So, you know, sometimes one gospel, you, it could be the same situation when you're looking at it, but look at Mark, the shortest uh, gospel. Three different times Jesus says, hey, I'm going to, I'm going away. I'm going to be killed. The last time was, last time he told him was like, hey, I'm about to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be delivered up. They're going to mock me, scourge me, and they're going to kill me, but I'm going to be raised from the dead. So it's like he did everything he could to kind of prepare them. And I, I saw that and I didn't want to traumatize my kids. So um, Isaiah and Ziva, Isaiah was six, Ziva was uh, eight at the time. As soon as I got sentenced, I went downstairs that night. My wife was like, no, don't tell him. I said, no, I'm going to tell him. I went down and I told him, I said, hey, I said, I've got, I'm going to have to go away for a while. It's going to be a long time. I said, it's going to be really hard. And, um, but God's going to bring us back together and it's going to be awesome again. Mm. But it's going to be real hard. And I just want to let you guys know, I love you. And, but this is what's coming. And then it got to where it was like three weeks. And I remember driving. I even remember where we were and me, Ziva and Isaiah in the car. We're like laughing, being silly. Like we always are. And, and I just stopped and I said, guys, I said, in three weeks, I'm going to be gone. I'm going to have to go away and it's going to be really hard and we're going to miss each other. But God is going to bring us back together again and everything is going to be awesome again. And then it happened a couple times. Then it was like the third day, then the second day. And the day of, you know, my dad comes to pick me up and he's driving me uh, four hours away to Virginia to this prison I have to go self-surrender to. And, and I just, at like five in the morning, I gather Ziva, Isaiah. I had a four-month-old at the time. Leonidas was born. He went through the whole trial. Serafina was two. And we're all in the bed. We're just hugging and we're cuddling and just like what we really always do. And um, yeah, I got up and I said, I love you guys. I'll see you soon. And I left and I got in the car and I drove. But the whole time, I just, everything I know about God, I still see this as an attack that was from the devil. The devil came. But the thing is, is the Bible says, don't give the devil any place in your life, is what Paul says. Give the devil no place. Which What's that say? If he has place in your life, who gave it to him? You. you. And that's not a condemning thing. That puts the power back in your hand, that if you gave him the authority to come into your life, then you can do something about him. But this was something I gave him to. God was trying to lead me another way. But there's this beautiful force called grace. You know, Paul says where, where sin abounds, grace abounds. You know, a lot of people say things. I, I just want to clarify some things. A lot of people say, oh, look at all this awesome stuff that came out of this suffering that I went through. God must have wanted me to go through it. So God made me go through it. No, 
No, the source of suffering comes from the devil, but God is this loving, amazing creator, and he can take the worst thing and make so much good come out of it to where it's like, my life today is better because of my failure, because of God's grace, than it would have been if that wouldn't have happened. I wouldn't be where I am today. I wouldn't know you if it weren't for today or for what I went through. Uh, I wouldn't be on this podcast. My wife and I's relationship wouldn't be where it is today if I didn't go through that. But that's just a testament of God's unbelievable kindness and mercy and grace to where even your failure, he's a loving father, not punishing you when you fail. He understands we're humans. We learn through failure. When you start walking from crawling, you're going to fall down a hundred times. When you get on that bike and you fall down, you know, next time you're going to get a few more feet before you fall down. But the dad is cheering you on because you get back up. Right. And so it's, I'm not concerned with the failure. I'm not trying to fail. But when I blow it, like, I'm just like, Lord, thank you that you're going to turn something amazing out of this. And I'm going to be able to teach somebody something. Because you know what? I've just decided that every time the devil makes a play against me, I may have to go through something that's going to suck for a while, but I'm going to, God's going to get the glory and he's going to regret it. Every time he comes at me, he tried to destroy my family. He tried to end my marriage. He wanted to destroy everything. But I just, just what I understand about God, I knew that I was going to come out of this and God was going to just from all of my other past battles and experiences that I've had with God, putting his word to the test seeing God always come through every single time, knowing I just knew that this was going to happen. But I also knew that I was going to have to go through some stuff. That judge had the authority to put me in prison. And God can put it on his heart to give me probation. God may plead my case, but that judge can say, I'm going to do what I want to do. Right. But, you know, it's funny because he still did a downward variance and the prosecutors were mad about that that he only gave me five years in prison, you know? And, and, uh, yeah, so it's been a, it's been a crazy, crazy journey. That's my prison experience. Real quick. I want to share something with you talking about preparing my kids. Shana, my wife and I, this morning, we were leaving the hotel to go to this brand builders event and my phone, I don't want to use my phone. And we had to move the little phone holder over to this side of my car. So I told her, I said, Hey, Put your ways on. Do you guys ever use the app ways? Yeah. Put your ways on this morning and then we're going to drive. And, and as we're driving, I hear my voice say in a quarter mile exit. When you get up here, turn left. It's all in my voice. And it brought all these memories back. I recorded that about a week before I went to prison. I sat down. I saw on ways that you could record your own voice and have it narrate. Instead of it being the robot talk, you can have it in your voice. So I put that, I sat down there and I recorded all that stuff so that while I was in prison, whenever she would put the navigation on, it would be my voice for the kids. And at the very end, it said, she said, Leo, because he's four months old at it. At the, at the very end, when it says, you've arrived at your destination, I said, I say, you've arrived at your destination. Yay. And she's told me, she said, Leo, she said, every time you would do that, Every time you'd say, yay, he would do it with you. So everywhere they drove with ways on, she just had it on just so it would be my voice. That was me kind of, and I forgot all about that till this morning. Going into prison and having things like that, 
preparing for it, knowing what you're going into and to look on your kids' faces and those days, you know, are, are ticking. Yeah. Um, did, um, like, how did you go into that? Like, was it, was it that, that, that drove, that gave you hope? Yeah. Was it like, was it your kids? It was God. It was absolutely, it was his word. It was what his promises, you know, it's like, I knew what he said. He said, he's going to work this out for my good. Now, um, I knew one day, I just trusted him one day that we're going to be back together and it's going to be awesome again. Right. That's just how it is. Like, like the promise comes if you don't give up. If you just don't give up, just endure, you'll get the crown. You'll get, you'll make it through this. So uh, it was what I understood. Everything I learned 13 years ago, at that time, it was about nine years ago, learning what faith is, how to hold on to faith, how to believe God's word in the face of seemingly contradictory circumstances things are always going to come and challenge you where the devil's always going to say yeah that's not for you or it's always like did god really say or did he mean it or is that for you you've you've screwed up too many times that's not going to work for you i've just there's one thing i'm just sure about god loves me he's going to work everything out together for my good so going into prison it sucked man it was it was terrible like um I'm not like those guys anymore. I'm not going in there as a criminal. I wasn't trying to break the law when I when the feds targeted me. Right. You know, I am. Uh, so I went in there as a Christian, and I just honestly, it, it was worse than what it was worse than what I thought. COVID happened afterwards, so visits went down the tube. I didn't even get to see my kids for the first year, and um, there were guys in there that had phones. And, you know, for the first year I resisted, but this COVID thing wasn't going away and we were locked in this place. We didn't get out for exercise, nothing like, um, and I had no, you, you know, you go from a place with your family and you've got love, you come home to love and then you go to a prison and maybe everybody doesn't hate you, but there's no love in that place. No, you're going to a place absent of love other than your relationship with God. Um, and so for the first year, I didn't see my kids or my family. And I would just at nighttime, I, I saw these guys, with, they break their phones out. And this was a camp. There was no fence around the place. So they could just, the guys that went out to work or whatever could get phones in there. And and uh, there were ways to where they were able to do that. I, I finally just like, I was like, man, I'm going to just take a risk. And it's worth it for my kids to be able to see me. It wasn't, I got to see my kids so much. It's like, I want my kids need to see me. I should, even as a prisoner, I have the right for my family to see me and they take right. that away. And um, so I got on the first video call, man. And I, it was like, that was, that like changed me. Like that was like, I was literally high for like three days on love. Like That just, propelled you. Oh man, it was. And so then I, I started borrowing felons more often. And that's when I would like, like watch Tony Robbins stuff and Ed Milet stuff. And that's how I saw to uh, Rory Vaden's podcast with Ed Milet. I'm sitting there hiding on a bunk. You know, they've got people watching out, like watching personal development videos. And, um, and I hear his whole message and, and that's how I found out about brand builders. I'm like, when I get out, I want to go there because they can kind of help me. I have this dream that when I was a kid, I would see Billy, I would see Billy Graham, like, and I didn't go to church or anything, but I believed in God and I loved God. Um, I didn't fully understand that he accepted me and I was always shameful. You said you had a history of shame. Shame was big in my 
life. Um, and I would see that and I'd be like, man, I want to do something like that. That's the only dream I can think of when I was a kid. So, so while I'm sitting in prison, you know, as time is ticking down for me to get out and I got out a year early, um, and I'm just like, man, I'm going to use this time to like go after a dream and, and I don't know how to get there, but I just want to like help people. Right. Like, I just want to be able to like share what God has taught me, what I've learned to overcome all these things and to give people hope when everything seems hopeless. Yeah. That was Abraham, you know, Abraham believed in hope against all hope. Yep. And God is the God of hope. Romans or Hebrews 11, one, what is that? Faith. Now faith is the expectation of things hoped for. Faith is always something that's good, positive. You don't hope for something terrible to happen. So right. faith all has to do with getting your hopes up. If you want to get your faith up, get your hopes up. Because because faith is about expecting. You're, you're taking it from a wish almost to where faith is like, I'm. it's the confident expectation of, that yeah. the things I'm hoping for are going to come to pass. Is there So the opposite of hope is despair. Is prison just got an overall thickness of despair in there? Yeah. It doesn't have hope. Was, not a lot of hope. No, especially with the federal government. So not only are you trying to keep hope in an extremely difficult environment, yeah. but you also have your everybody around you is not exercising hope. Yeah, and being a Christian and not partaking in a lot of the conversations that people have in there, people interpreted that as me being better than them or something like that. But it's just like, I've learned to get my words um, right like years before I went to prison, you know, and I stopped like, I just stopped talking about certain things, you know, and me not partaking in that. People misread it. So they hated me in prison. And I had issues with the cops. The cops, this one cop like targeted me and he, he like, he actually lied about me one time and, and sent me to the shoe and, um, I didn't do anything wrong and I'm sitting with 23 hours with, you know, 24 hours, 24 hours. Don't get out in the shoe, you, in the shoe, they got a shower and you're up there in the penitentiary with the shoe. So I was in a camp, but the only shoe is in the penitentiary up the hill where I was at. So you're in there with the people that are in there for killing, killing each other and killing guards and attacking guards. And so you're in there. In a separate cell, but all night long you're hearing that. And and that's just a time where I was just like, this sucks. But Lord, even then, I didn't do anything wrong, but I got into a little like uh, a disagreement with this cop in there. And he's a dirty cop, man. He was known for like making up stuff about people and sending them to the shoe. Like this cop, this guy tried to destroy my life. He said I sexually advanced him. He said... He made up stuff about me because I disagreed with him. And uh, I, the story is I was actually in uh, in the classroom watching uh, uh, Bill Winston preaching that comes on TV like a Christian thing. I remember at four o'clock it came on. So I, I went over there and I sat in there and something came over to the speaker and I didn't hear it. And apparently he called everybody in there and I turned it off to listen and and I didn't hear it, and so I like I went back to my uh, my my Bible study I was watching, and then somebody came and got me, and and the guy said, "You're always pushing the limits." I, first thing I said was like, "Man, I'm sorry, I didn't hear you." It's like, "Field, I'm tired of this. You're always pushing the limits," and and uh, 
And then he said, you go get your chair, sit up here next to me. And everybody in the unit's like laughing, like I'm like the kindergartner that's in trouble with the teacher. And I said, I said, great, what are we going to hold hands to? And everybody laughs about that. And then, so he gets done with his meeting and he called me privately into his office. And he said, Field, I'm sick of this. You're always pushing the boundaries. I said, and, and for whatever reason, every day he targeted me before I just look at him and say, yes, sir. Whatever he said, yes, sir. But today I, I just was like, man, I said, no, I don't. Yeah, you do. No, I don't. Yeah, I didn't like get into an aggressive argument. I just disagreed with him. And he said, well, I'm, I'm sick of talking to you. I said, well, you say you're sick of it. And right then something said, shut up. Mm-hmm. And I just disregarded that shut up. And I said, you say you're always sick of doing this. I said, but every opportunity you get, man, you go out of your way to like screw with me. And he said, stand up, put your hands behind your back. He lied on the thing. I had to walk up to the penitentiary and self-surrender to the shoe, which doesn't happen. Said I sexually advanced him, asked if we could hold hands. And I'm up there and this sucks. And the shoe, it sucks. Everything you've ever done in your life, you're just sitting there. You can't sleep anymore. You sleep on a half a mattress, like it's torture everywhere almost. And and all you can do is think about that stuff. But I'm like, Lord, every time I go through something, now I take the responsibility. And I look for Lord. What did you do? You you don't you're not sending me play. You're not trying to teach me lessons and that way. And and there's a lesson to be learned. But you're not punishing me. And I was just like, the whole time, I'm like, man, this sucks. I said, but Lord, thank you. I said, you told me to shut up. Like, right, I heard that. Like, it, it was strong me, shut up now. And I didn't, I just disregarded it. And I didn't do anything wrong, but I saw how the Lord was leading me. And so I'm up there and and uh, he comes up the next day. And I found out now that he put a charge again. He was trying to destroy my life. He was trying to send me across the country where there's no way, like a sex charge, it's like, there's no way you're going to see your family. They send you to like California or something. And and I, and once I found out like three days after that, that's what he did. I didn't even know what was, what I was being charged with. They were like, why are you here? I said, I don't know. I disagreed with the guy. And I found out and I was like, I felt like David. I had to just like speak my faith to this cop. And he showed up, knocked on the door and you know, the door is about that thick and you can't really hear anything. And I see him in the morning and I said, Hey, I said, I said, God's going to deliver me from this thing and you're going to be exposed as a liar. And he couldn't hear me because the door is so thick. And uh, he's like, what? And I got down and I said it through the door. I said, God's going to deliver me from this. And I said, you're going to be exposed as a liar. And he's like, is that all? I said, yeah, that's it. And I wasn't mad. I was just like, I felt like I had to speak it. Yeah. And it turned out like he didn't, I didn't get served in time. So they by some technicality, they had to throw it out. But if you get charged with something by a cop in those places, you're not beating it. Really? Whether it's true or not. That word against yours. No, it's their word against yours. And um, and yeah, they had to throw it out because they have to serve you within a certain period of time so you know why you're there. So by, based on a technicality. So I got, but man, it sucked while I was in there. But still, my thing was like, God, you're this sucks, but you're awesome, Lord. You are always leading us. You are always guiding me, and I'm going to just, I'm going to be tuned in. I'm, I don't learn the fastest, you know, and I have to learn the hard way, but I'm still, I'm going to learn this lesson. And I, I just, if I feel like if you're really honest and you look back through the things that you've suffered through in your life, 
there was something God was trying to lead you away from that thing. Yeah, absolutely. But the beautiful thing is, is when you miss it, you mess up, man, he's, he just wants you to get back up and he'll work the rest out. And you're stronger next time, every time. So leading up to like, you knew what day you were going to get out? Like, did you count it? Were you able to count like the days or was it more like you knew you had a probation hearing or? Yeah. When I left, I thought I was going for five years. I didn't know how the, how it went. I, I looked up on the internet and saw that, you know, in federal you do all your time, but then I found out you do like 80%. So I would have got out. Um, I went in October, 2009 if with good time, which, Hey, if that thing that he charged me with would have stuck, that would have got rid of my good time. Um, and I knew that too. And, and even the officer that dealt with it, he said, man, he said, well, I wouldn't have charged with the sex thing. He said, but this other thing you would have been charged and that would have messed up my good time. So, um, the first step back thing came through. If you remember Kim Kardashian, when Trump was in office, she did that prison reform. That's for federal prison. So that, that with good behavior, you can earn up to a year off. Okay. And so I had like good behavior and they had not put it through all that time. And I was like one of the first people to get that. So that got me like, I got a thing that say, said I was getting a year off. So I ended up getting out. They released me to a halfway house in Columbia, South Carolina, about an hour and a half away. I think it was September 17th or something. So once I got that, then yeah, I was able to kind of count down and stuff. And yeah. Unbelievable. It, it was, it was crazy. What's the scariest thing you've ever seen in prison? Well, I was in a thing you've seen. I was in a camp, uh, you know, so really the worst thing I saw was just like dirty cops, man. Like, like there was one cop at this institution I was at that was a meth addict and he like, he liked for himself The one of the, yeah. One of the CEOs like fell asleep in the parking lot with like seven grand, like are, are like an ounce of meth, like a lot, a large amount of meth, like on his lap and they found him and nothing happened. He just got fired. Like there are people in prison for 20 years for having like that much. Yeah. Meth. And, but just like how the rules don't apply and, and then hearing while I was in prison, like there was some, there was a prison called Coleman for, it's like a women's prison in federal, in the federal thing where the women were getting like, uh, sexually abused by the, by the cops in there and nothing happened to those guys. So that's like that. Where did you go? Where was, where... I was in, uh, Jonesville Gap, Virginia, Jonesville, right. um, Lee County, USP Lee. It's a penitentiary. And then the camp is there. The campers are attached to like kind of help. Okay. So when they kill each other and they get on lockdown, the campers got to go into the penitentiary and like make sandwiches for 1400 people, three meals a day and, and get talked to by like the, the cops up there. They're used to dealing with like really terrible people. So they treat the camper. They don't like see any difference. Like just how you're treated, man. That honestly, that's the worst thing that I saw in prison. Crazy. Um, Seeing guys with injuries that yeah. the the uh, the feds are, they can't go to the doctor. Like a guy's bicep attached in the camp. They don't, they don't take him to the doctor. There was a guy whose bicep was atta- de- detached for like a month and a half before he finally got to go to the doctor. And he's got this big bulge. He did it out there playing volleyball and just how they don't take care of people. Like 
by the time, it, like by the time the ambulance gets there in the penitentiary, the people are dead. Yeah. And the things, honestly, the things that the federal prisons that go on in there, OSHA would shut down private prisons for. That that bathroom where I was at, man, I hope I don't get targeted by anybody for this, for just being honest and exposing it. The, the kitchen up in the penitentiary was disgusting. Rats everywhere, man. It smelled like sewage. The drains were backed up. Like, there's no way, like, if you were a private prison... The government would shut you down, but just the stuff right. that goes. Nobody holds the fe- the uh, the um the federal the federal government account. Yeah. Who's going to shut them right. down for it? So it, what happens there is worse. I mean, it's just like yeah. It's so that that's the stuff. Like I've heard those stories before. Like you know, temperature wise, like things that you know, health, cleanliness, um, you know, black mold, like just stuff that you know. It, that nobody would normally get away with, but because they're unchecked, unregulated, they are the federal government, you know? Yeah. But how, how did your kids take it when you came home? Oh, that was awesome, man. I, I And they had to come visit me from um, uh, in the, the halfway house at first and just reunited with them. And, you know, Leo was four months old when he left, but I was able to actually have like little video calls that I wasn't supposed to have. So I'd get on the phone and, I'd be like hiding on my bunk and like roaring at him. And we like, he'd get on and say daddy and stuff like that. So we built like a little relationship through like video calls and stuff like that. So if it wasn't for that, and that was a thing where it was like, man, if I get busted doing this today, it's worth it. Like for my kids to actually have some kind of relationship, because you can't, all you get is 15, like the women's prisons had like video calling, but they didn't give it to the men even after COVID. So all you get, is 15 minute phone calls every other day and you can't talk to a two-year-old or a four-month-old there's no conversation and even isaiah like he's just kind of like not gonna like there was no relationship with him but once i got back he's back to like he's funny man just went back he like comes and gets a bed lays on top of me he's like about to be 11 i just let him do it man i just I love him so much. You just like see it so much different than a lot of people. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, I will never, ever like reject my kid. God doesn't reject me, man. Right. God doesn't ever say you're too old to come and sit on my lap. You know? How about your son, Jacob? Man, while I was in prison, um, doing those video calls, that was another risk I took to, uh, to develop a relationship with him. He had been out of my life. I didn't really... It got to a point, so after I got off meth, started my family, like I knew that my ex-wife was probably telling him st- some stuff, and it was probably a similar relationship to with my dad growing yeah. up, Yeah. Um. to where I was just like, finally at one point, I just said, God, you're going to have to father my son, because I can't make him want to be in my life. Like I would let him know, I'd say, hey man, I'm here for you if you ever want to talk, anything, but he just didn't have any interest and, uh, which is understandable, you know? Um, and I was paying for his phone, but up until prison the night before, uh, about a week before I went to prison, I said, Hey, I'm not going to be able to pay for your phone anymore. Um, and the night before prison, like he, st- he just called me up and he's asking me all kinds of questions, but I didn't talk to him again until about eight months before I got out. Whoa. And I started like, uh, I started calling him. And uh, he wrote me a letter finally. Um, I wrote him every birthday. 
and told him I loved him and he's awesome and I'm always here for him. And then he finally wrote me when he was going through a little bit of a hard time with his family. And, um, and we just started calling and man, we just talked forever. We just sit there and talk. I, and the funny thing is, is I realize he's so much more like me than like God, like he's maybe more like me now than he would have been if I would have been in his life. Like his sense of humor, like the things he's into, like I've really gotten into psychology and stuff like that. And, um, and he's into that stuff. So we just talk. And so, yeah, since I've been out, like he's come from Phoenix to visit me three times, um, since summer. And he came at one point, I flew him out and he, he stayed with me for uh, three weeks. So yeah, we go on little adventures together and how old is he now? He's 20. Yeah. Yeah, so God restored restored that whole thing. Absolutely. And that gift that you gave him that you're in his life to validate him and oof, that's powerful stuff. Yeah. You know, stuff that you and me didn't have. You know, ultimately all those things you did, curious around sex, you know, drugs, you know, whatever it might be, I firmly believe it just all goes down to like we're all just, you know, little boys who are looking to be told that we did a good job. And when you grow up without that, you, you're going to go to search for it and you're going to find it in a lot of things that you should not find it in. Do you still find yourself sometimes having to catch yourself? You know, like I always <laughs> like, Hey, where I'm, 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 I'm trying to get some validation from this thing. Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, here's the thing, man, you've been thinking stuff your whole life. You've been thinking a certain way your whole life and to think that you're just going to automatically like just make a decision. You know, I, I like Joe Dispenza. I like the way his, his take on it. He calls it like the thinking feeling loop that like our brains are like computer programs. They get stuck in loops. You know, you think a thought and that thought creates an emotion, right. which is a chemical. So you're literally, you think a thought, you be, you get under the influence of that chemical that's released and you, that produces that feeling. And then you're in that feeling and that feeling produces the thought. So you're stuck in these loops. And, and my, my thing, what I was taught by Dan Moeller at this school was the whole process of mind renewal, which is taking every thought captive yep. that tries to exalt itself against the knowledge of God. So it's trying to come up and say that it's true, not the word. Right. But he taught me, he said, you know, there's a verse in a Psalm that says that God magnifies his, his uh, word above his own name. So God puts his word above everything. In fact, he identifies himself as the word in John one, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God. So God identifies himself as love and as the word. And so what, Dan taught me was how the devil, how he comes at us is he plants a thought in your brain in the first person. Yep. And he's trying to get you to think that you're the originator of that thought. That thought came from you. So you Mm -hmm. can say, and now listen, in my Christian walk, that used to cause me to question God's word all the time because I wasn't taught how to magnify God's word above my experience. And so I would magnify my experience above God's word. So I'd have a dream that I'm still getting high. Or a dream where, you know, I was married at the time and I'm like chasing some girl and, and I would wake up and, and that experience caused me to question God's word. Mm. And I would say, man, God, I thought you said that old things passed away. Everything became new. I guess I haven't changed because I had this experience. So I would, 
I would conclude it based on an experience instead of saying what I was blindly taught by Dan right. was when the devil comes to plant that thought is to immediately springboard off of that and to, and to thanking God, like, God, thank you for what your word says. So, man, for the first year, every single night when I quit meth 13 years ago, every single night I would go to bed dreaming about doing meth and chasing women, cheating on my wife, and just beating the hell out of people. Like in this dream, like my dreams are real violent. But in the dream, like those things used to cause me to question it, yeah. question my salvation. And now I was taught to just every attack, every thought that the devil puts in my head, and whether or not it was the devil putting it in my head or whether or not it was some subconscious loop, either way, it helped me to identify this is the devil trying to get me to identify and believe that I haven't been changed to get me to act like the old me. So I would be dreaming every night about doing meth and chasing women when my wife's in bed next to me and I just wake up and this time, because of what I've been taught, I would just look up and I'd smile and I'd say, God, thank you. You've changed me, Lord. Your word is true. I don't care if I dream this way every single night for the rest of my life. Your word is true. And you know what's crazy is there's a hack involved in that. So there's a there's a mental brain hack to where if you can get your emotions involved, it makes it more real. So the devil will come and get you convinced that you're still the old guy because it yeah, yeah. feels so real. Yeah. There's a chemical, there's an emotion that's attached to it because it feels real. It's like, oh, maybe I haven't been changed. But you can kind of hack it by getting your own, by being the alchemist of your own brain. And whenever you say, thank you, Lord, you're saying it's already done. It's already true. You can release the right chemicals to where what I would do is I would just get my emotions involved and I would just say, Lord, thank you. And I'd sit there and I'd just smile and, and I would just like, I would just sit in that like, Lord, your word's true. That's so awesome to where eventually like we look at it scientifically, what's happening is you're creating a, a chemical in your brain attached to what you're the new truth. So this mind renewal thing to make it more real, you're not just saying, oh, I'm a new creature. I'm a new creature. I'm a new creature. If you can actually get your emotions involved into it, it makes it the whole process a lot quicker, you know, because it begins to like, if you just sit there. Yeah. It's like, it feels real. Like you, like, yep. like you can make the word of God feel real. Yep. And that's like, you're saved by grace through faith. That's kind of like how Dan taught it. He's like, you, you believe something, but then grace comes and makes it real in your life. And that grace in that situation is like that chemical, like that feeling. You can make it feel real. So every time the devil come, would come at me and tempt me and try to get me to attach myself to my old identity... I would use that as a springboard every time it would come. So mindfulness is a part of it, really, which is really the scripture. Take every thought captive. You're being aware of what's running through your mind. Don't believe every thought. And you replace it with the truth. And the word of God brings, you know, it says in Psalms, the entrance of the word brings light. Like that's like the light in your life. And, and if you could, there's that hack. So if there's a hack. Just sit in God's word, sit in the good news enough till it feels real. Thank him, like thank him enough to where you start feeling that, like, and then it's a matter of time. And so the, the, the answer to your question is yes, it's shorter periods of time now, Yeah. but there's, you know, you kind of like get better at it, better at it. But yeah, things trigger me today still, like 
I tell people all the time, like getting rid of the meth didn't like solve all my problems. Now I just have the problems of a normal person. You know, now I just, I, I still have the problems of a normal, I, like the, I, life is still hard, but it's like there, I had to get rid of that or there's no woman that was going to stay with me, man. I was there. There's no kid. I'm not going to be able to be. A it's not the math. It's not the, it's not the, the bad habit. It's not the, it's the root of that. And I really relate to what you say because like, you know, when I find myself gravitating and drifting. You know, I never did meth. I pretty much did everything else, I think, in, in life. If people put it in front of my face, I was willing to try it. I was especially if you're drunk, if you're drunk, you try anything. Yeah, absolutely. And um so but it would be if it wasn't drugs, it'd be work. If it wasn't work, it was sports. If it wasn't sports, it was women. You know, and I still have to be aware of that. But now that I'm more equipped, now I can see it. So the first thing you said was the mindfulness part, right? So like, I'll be gravitating towards something. I'll start getting a little manic and want to be like, you know, okay, I'm going to drink, you know, or whatever it might be. And I'll start thinking about making a bad choice. And that's when I stop. And now I'm equipped and more mature to be able to say, okay, let's go back to that young boy, Sean, that little boy, Sean, the one that wasn't getting validated. What's going on right now? Are you the angry child? Are you being the sob sobbing child? Are you the lonely child? And what I'll find some our anxious child. And so what will happen was like, oh, well, I'm just feeling really anxious right now. Right. And then the second thing you do, now I'm able to go to the spiritual discernment and I'm able to ask the Lord, be like, okay, thank you. You know, I'll, I'll literally tell the devil sometimes, I'll be like, thank you for bringing this out and making it very clear to me that you're trying to stand in the way of something. And I'll go to the Lord and I'll be like, I know what the truth is about me right now. The devil's game is so weak. It's, so it's like, it's such, so predictable. It's so weak. It's not deep. It's not intrinsic. And once you figure it out, once you understand the way he works, yeah. it's always, it's always the same thing. Yep. It's always to get you to question, to, to question God's word, question something good God said, to question a promise. But yeah, it, it is weak and we have authority over him and we can tell him to take a hike. You know, it's funny. Uh, I've got this hat and I've got a couple shirts. Tell us about that. that. It's just about um, being thankful always, thanking God always. I, I recently did a little, uh, I did a little uh, study on what happens when you say thanks. Like you literally, you, your brain releases like oxytocin and like dopamine. Like there, it releases these chemicals. And but, but it's like what I've learned to do is just thank God and everything. Like I told you, I was in. That's become my habit. That is the greatest way to build your faith. Is Find something God's word promises you. You ask for it. He's going to give it to you. Mm -hmm. And you begin to thank God for something you can't see. And really get your emotions involved in it. Really, like, just sit there. and get it to, Sit there until you're, like, feeling like, like it feels real. Like, Lord, you really are good. You really are awesome. You really are working out my future. And so for me, it's just about saying thanks all the time. And it's funny you said, thanks, devil. Because, like, I was telling my wife, uh, you know, it's like my hat says thanks. But it's like, if I were to put an exclamation point there, that's like to the devil. Thanks, dude. You just right. you just upgrade. You just set me up for my next promotion. Yeah. You the, Okay. You decided to step into my life. You're going to lose. Right. And I'm going to learn something. Yeah, okay. I've got to suffer. I've got to go through some pain. 
it's gonna it may hurt for a while, but I'm gonna come out of this. And you know what? Even if I don't, if if I die, I win no matter what. You either way, okay. I get now. I get to go to heaven. Like this is gonna he be amazing. Ne- he can never win. I was, I'm always. I'm always like, thank you for playing chess because my God's, I mean, <laughs> thank, you, thank you for playing checkers because my God's playing chess, Yeah, you know? So we got just a couple of minutes left here and, you know, you told us about like where you came, what developed those problems, a story about your brother and, you know, like, and then going and serving and it, so there's a lot of people right now that are in that place of despair in life. Mm. The world's filled with it right now. And I don't think it's going to continue. It's not going to diminish and go away. You've you've been in those moments when the lights are going off, when the door was shut, when you knew you had years left. Like, nothing but a promise. You got nothing but a promise. What do you tell people? What would you like to say before we close to people that are like, I need some sort of hope right now? Yeah, yeah. Um, God's not doing this to you. He's not punishing you. There is a devil. Jesus said he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus went on to say, I have come that you may have life and life more abundantly. So what's important is for you to learn to assign to the correct person what's going on. God is not punishing you. He is on your side. He has a future planned for you. And he has a dream that's bigger and better than anything you could ever come up with on your own. So get your hopes up. Faith is the expectation of things hoped for. Get your hopes sky high. God is on your side and you've never gone too far. He will always accept you. I'm proof of that. And if I can change, you can change. And uh, if you need help, reach out to one of us and we'd love to help you. Man, that's great yeah. right there. How can our followers, how can the listeners find you? Well, I am on all social media platforms uh, under it, D. Jonathan Field. There's a famous horse whisperer named Jonathan Field. There's a famous karate guy named Jonathan Field. So I will be, I am at D. Jonathan Field. Um, I'm coming out with my website, djonathanfield.com. But if you go to Facebook and you type in D. Jonathan Field, all one word, or YouTube. Yeah. Actually, it's not popping up on YouTube, um, but I have a YouTube channel that I'm working on. Uh, but We'll yeah. tag all the channels below and... You got to follow his content, his messages. They're very inspiring. They're deep. I really, really enjoy it. Thank you. And, uh, you know, man, look, we're not, you know, dealing dope anymore, but now we're dealing some hope. <laughs> so we want to thank you for coming. Thank You're now officially a hope dealer. Awesome. Continue to pass it on out there. And I'm honored that going. you came out here to the boondocks to fill yeah. the hope wagon. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Thank you, too. Hey, thank you, brother.